So we are here today on part three, working with the transgender and non-binary population. Uh, and today we're gonna talk about treatment considerations throughout the lifespan. And so what I mean by lifespan is about a young child, maybe four or five years old to elder population. Quick terminology review, if this is your third time with us, you are experts and pros, but for everyone who's joining us for the first time, we're gonna go over this real fast. So sex is the classification of a person as male, female, or intersex, and it can be incongruent or congruent with someone's gender identity. So that's usually, I always say, uh, instead of gender reveal party, what we should actually call it is sex reveal party because we're revealing someone's sex, not their gender, right? Because they're not even born yet. So they can't tell us what their gender is. Gender identity is a person's internal sense of their gender. So this can be congruent or incongruent or neither uh, with sex. And so that if someone's incongruent with the gender or the sex that they're born as, then they are transgender. So it's a widely accepted umbrella term for people whose gender identity or expression differs from what's associated with the sex that they were assigned at birth. So I'm transgender, born female, identify as male. Non-binary are individuals who experience their gender identity beyond the categories of man and woman. So this is not the same as transgender. This is very, very important. Uh, so people who are trans are usually more on the binary spectrum, right? They're identify as male or female. Non-binary don't fit into any category. Some days they feel like they might be more of one, might be more of the other, or they just have days where they feel like they're neither. And that's a totally valid identity. Cisgender are usually, or cisgender are always someone whose gender identity is congruent with the sex that, that they were um, assigned at birth. So think about this as the heterosexual to the homosexual. And it's, you know, probably a good guess that most of you in this seminar, in this workshop, are cisgender. Um, cis is actually the Latin root for same, whereas trans is the Latin root. It, uh, to change. So cisgender, same gender, transgender to change. So before we jump in, I want you to just think to yourself about some immediate thoughts you have regarding trans and non-binary children, right? Um, and then I want you to think, do you think that children are too young to transition from one gender to another? So think on that for a second. And if you would like to share your thoughts, feel free to send it in the chat box. Um, but this is always a real good thought provoking question because it brings up a lot of different feelings for people. And now remember, gender and sexuality are not the same thing, right? So when you think about this, let's not think about this as, you know, is sexuality too young for children to think about, but rather is gender, right, is identity something to, you know, that children are too young to think about or consider exploring. So what are some immediate thoughts that we might have on these questions? And I'll scroll through um, as well to see if anyone does the hand raising on Zoom. Um, that's always a fun feature if you want to speak out loud. Uh, Sasha says, I don't do, do you mean that you don't think they're too young to transition? Oh, 
Stacy says, thinks are, uh, kids are usually aware of their gender identity by three to five. Absolutely. Kids, uh, Ferris says, kids naturally explore their gender identity, so it feels natural to me. Sorry, yes, I don't think it's too early. Oh, okay. Awesome. Yeah, so there seems to be a lot of consensus that it might not be too early. Absolutely. So let's talk a little bit about that. Let's jump into children. I love this picture. Uh, this picture was taken at an event hosted by an organization that we'll talk about called Gender Odyssey. Um, and so all these kids listed in here, self or in pictured are identified as trans. So what many may think, right, around children. So feelings about gender are too complex for children to understand. Um, there's a lack of consensus around ability to determine gender, right? So a lot of people are like, well, there isn't a consensus. So, you know, we shouldn't be talking about it. Uh, people think that there is importance of training and education. Um, we definitely agree that there should be collaboration with multiple healthcare and school providers as well with family. And actually, nobody really knows how common trans non-binary children are. However, some specialists estimate that one in 500 children are transgender or non-binary, which is a lot. That's a, that's a lot of kids. Um, and more recently, we've been able to track these children because of social media, uh, TikTok is a really big one. Um, so kids are able to come out and identify, you know, in the gender that they feel that they are a lot earlier. So trans children know, okay, they know. So trans children know who they are the same way that cis children know who they are. And trans non-binary children will assert what toys that they do and don't like, clothes that they will and won't wear, or activities they prefer. And a lot of the time, what happens is they're speaking to us constantly about these things, right? Like, I want the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtle Band-Aid instead of the Barbie Band-Aid, right? Or I want um, to play with this instead of that. And parents, they get too caught up in what is being seen correctly or how that makes them look as a parent to actually sit and listen to what their child is trying to tell them. So trying to teach a transgender child to be okay with their body can actually further their hatred with their body. So if you, a little kid, you know, I remember when I was young, I was about four years old and I ran up to my mom and I said, mom, I think there's a little boy living inside of me and I think my penis fell off and I don't know where it is, right? I, I remember telling her that. My mom was like, oh my gosh, I don't know what to do. And if my mom had said to me, oh honey, you know what? You don't have a penis, right? You have a vagina and you're never going to have a penis and you're not a boy, you're a girl and you should love, you should learn how to love your body right it would have furthered this sort of like feeling of discontent and hatred because i wasn't being listened to i wasn't being believed right little kids they just want people to listen and to authenticate and to affirm them luckily my mom kind of just looked at me and was like okay well we could you know <laughs> go keep looking for it or whatever you know she she was very um chill with that which helped to sort of allow me to 
be happier a little bit longer. And we'll talk about, you know, what happens as children get older, but um, trying to sort of change kids' minds can lead to some really, really disastrous results. Like I've heard of um, little kids who are trans feminine, right? So they have a penis when they're little and they try to cut them off because their parents aren't listening to them or telling them, well, some little girls might have a penis, right? And so we can talk about how can we help you feel better? And, you know, so there could be very dangerous results. So um, the general rule, we'll talk about SIP, right? So consistent, insistent, and persistent. So insist, uh, consistent is this unchanging in nature over a period of time. So for example, a kid says, you know, uh, a trans, someone who is transmasculine, right? So born female identifies as male. Uh, and they are like, no, I'm boy, and I'm going to wear my hats backwards and wear shorts and uh, wear t shirts and play with toys, right? And they kind of just do it. And there isn't any sort of change, right? So when they're five, they're doing this six, they're doing this seven, eight, nine, right? Unchanging nature. Insistent is something verbal, right? So unwavering in feelings and in actions. So like when I said, mom, I feel like there's a little boy in me. And then as I get older, I'm like, that little boy, like I feel like I am a boy, right? Unwavering in feelings and actions. Persistent is continuing to firmly identify despite difficulty or a opposition. So if one parent is like, no, this isn't factual, this isn't what ha what's happening. And the kid's like, you know what, I'm going to still do this regardless. Or when I'm out at school, my friends call me one thing. And I identify, you know, as something when I'm home to be safe, right, there's this continuing um, persistence to identity. So common steps that we t we can take as clinicians, um, with clients or ways that we can sort of encourage parents to help children who are trans and non-binary affirm themselves are seen here. So you can help children wear clothing that might affirm their gender, right? So if a little kid is like, you know, I feel like I'm a girl, right? Take them to the store and say, what do you want to wear? What, what works for you, right? What makes you feel like yourself? You can adopt a hairstyle that affirms a child's gender. There's a great video going around on TikTok that I love so much um, about this parent who's like, my child just came out as trans. And in this household, you know what we do? We went out and got them a haircut. Isn't he so handsome? And it's like this little kid in their face and he just they look so happy. Um, choosing a name that affirms a gender. Sometimes kids, right? Kids want to go back and forth, try out different names. Um, you can agree on maybe a nickname or a name that sort of um, is an abbreviation, right? Just that way the transition's a little bit easier. Uh, you can ask others to call your child or call the client by pronouns that affirm gender. Um, so that's really, really important, right? Um, we talked about pronouns in the first one, but just to reiterate, sometimes just using the pronouns he, she, they can be the most affirming thing that you could possibly do, right? And it's also a safety uh, issue as well. You can also help your 
client or the parents of a trans child, help them figure out how to use bathrooms and other facilities that match their gender identity. So this can be really, really important. And this might be also a little bit of difficulty depending on the type of school they go to. But, you know, sometimes a really great sort of meeting in the middle is letting them use like the nurse's restroom or letting them um, not have to change in the locker room, stuff like that, right? So finding ways to help them affirm their gender, but also feel safe. There's a couple of questions coming in. So let me just check. Uh, it said, how long did it take for me to process transition publicly? Um, so a little bit about my story, which I guess works really well um, with today's lecture is that I actually came out when I was, I guess, 12 um, to my mother and she was really, really supportive. Uh, father, not so much. It took him a while, but um, I had already gone through puberty at that point. So hormone blockers weren't an option. We're going to talk about that in a second. Um, but I was allowed to start testosterone when I started 15. So um, between 12 and 15, about three years, it took for me to socially transition, um, to tell people I actually had to stop school and be homeschooled for a while. And then when I turned 16, I went back to high school um, and got to finish my junior and senior year. Uh, and the follow-up question that, to that was, any psychological disturbance that happened. Yes, um, and we'll talk about that. I was extremely depressed, suicidal. Um, I had dropped out of school, had left a lot of friendships, uh, was horrendously bullied. So there were a lot of things that affected my, my uh, mental health. And that's one of the reasons why I do the work that I do today, right, is to help prevent that from happening to other people. So we'll talk a little bit more about that when we get to adolescence. Um, and I always love sharing aspects of my story. And I think it's very important during this conversation. Um, so feel free to ask. So hormone blockers. So hormone blockers are actually a relatively newer thing. Um, I, when I came out, it actually was not even talked about. I came out in 2003. Um, but within the last 10 years, it's been something that's been developed actually here in Los Angeles Children's Hospital uh, and championed for. So healthcare providers may actually use fully reversible medications that put puberty on hold. So it's usually given between the ages of 11, uh, 8 to 11. It kind of depends on sex assigned at birth. For females um, assigned at birth or AFAB individuals, so that's assigned female at birth, um, it's usually given earlier because as we know, the female body does happen to go through puberty earlier. And so what this does is it literally puts everything on pause. So you don't, you know, grow or change, right? So for assigned male at birth, that could be really great because you're not like going to grow super tall. Um, and the second you stop it, right, the second it leaves your system, it resumes puberty uh, if for some reason a child decides that they don't want to transition. These medications are also known as GnRH inhibitors, but they're commonly used, uh, the, the slang term, I guess, are puberty blockers. So you'll hear that a lot from kids because um, they don't really understand 
hormone blockers. It's like, I want to take the medication that prevents me from puberty. When gender dysphoria increases with the onset of puberty and a, a child is still questioning their gender, or if a child is social transitioned already and they want to avoid unwanted pubertal changes, pubertal, pubertal changes, um, that's a great time to actually start talking to the doctor about hormones. So if a child comes out at five, it's a little bit, or sorry, hormone blockers. Um, when a child comes out at five, it's a little bit too early, right? Um, we don't really need to mess with any, we want them to grow. Normally we want them to, experience body changes that are normal for a five-year-old. Um, but then when we start seeing the first sort of signs of puberty, it's time to do those blockers. And so blockers can be given in a, a myriad of different ways. The most common way, which is probably easier, is an implant. So the implant goes in the arm. It's a tiny, tiny, tiny little outpatient procedure. It's like you put a numb thing, you put the shot in, done. Uh, the only issue with that is that you have to go back for maintenance every three to six months. However, for kids, it's probably a lot easier than the other options, which are taking pills um, or doing injections on a weekly basis. So um, it's really up to you. I'm not a medical provider, so I can't tell you like which way is best. But with the kids I work with, you know, they, they generally like the implant because they don't have to worry or think about it. Or if they're going to a sleepover, you know, they don't have to take their medication with them and explain that. So those are hormone blockers. Any questions on hormone blockers? Um, and if I can't answer them due to medical info, I can certainly point you in the right direction. Reflection. So after reviewing this information about children, right, pre-puberty, has your opinion changed around the questions we asked before? So are children too young to transition? And what have you learned that you might not have considered? Does anyone um, feel like maybe it's a little scary still? Yes scary for children to go through hormone blockers. Absolutely. So something to consider, right, uh, about hormone blockers is all the research they've been doing, because they've actually, hormone blockers were actually developed for cisgender children who have um, had to have like taken medications or sometimes going through various forms of um, like cancer treatments that make puberty happen a lot sooner than planned. And so what they did was they took the hormone blocker idea and moved it to trans non-binary children. So the way that I kind of think about it are that it's not just for trans children, cis children are using it too. And when we kind of look at it as like, it just gives some time to still do that consistent, persistent, insistent um, sort of pattern, right? The worst possible thing that happens is that their puberty is delayed. They might look a little younger for a while, but if they decide to not transition, they can go off and resume. So yeah, medication in general, super scary, right? But um, sometimes it could also be the matter of life or death for a lot of individuals. Okay, 
So let's move on. And we're not done necessarily with children. I just want to talk about adolescents. And then what we'll do is we'll talk, we're going to talk about families and treatment. And then, of course, children and adolescents will be lumped into there all together. Okay. So let's talk about adolescents. I love this photo. This is a group of teens who all got together um, and went to sort of help bring awareness to trans youth. So some considerations when working with adolescents, besides the fact that they're adolescents and that comes with so many of its own fun, wonderful, rich, um, not issues, but circumstances. So we need to assess for co-occurring concerns, suicidal ideation, self-injury, and mental health symptoms. So for me, you know, I had attempted suicide three times when I came out. So by the time I was 14, I had already experienced three suicide attempts. I was cutting daily. Um, self-injury was huge, especially around my chest. Um, and I was experiencing horrendous mental health symptoms. So I had to address those symptoms while also working on areas of transition, right? Because just because you transition doesn't mean all that, you know, um, go, is, goes away, right? Those are learned coping skills. Adolescence is a super rapid period of change. So things are gonna change, um, friends, likes, interests, but what you see stay cons stays consistent, you know, is the drive, the desire to transition. And sometimes what happens is you see, my mom called it putting everything in the transition basket, right? So I put everything on hold, my studying, hobbies, I played music, I stopped playing the drums to transition. And that could be dangerous because, you know, once a child is transitioning, then what do they have, right? So encouraging to still explore who they are as a person in conjunction to their trans or non-binary identity. So this is awesome. The timing of social and medical transition. Oh, I read that as social media. Never mind. I'll talk about that in a second. This is also awesome too. But timing of social and medical transition is also important. We talked about puberty suppression. Peer relationships, schools, and families. So TikTok, Instagram, not so much Facebook, but all these social media platforms, uh, Discord is a new one, Reddit, are giving peer relationships a whole new meaning. So people are making friends, teens are making friends with other trans teens across the world. So it's giving them opportunity to connect to people that they might not have had especially right now during quarantine when they're trying to connect with friends outside of school. Also something to consider, which is weird to think about um, so early in life, but fertility issues. When you go on hormones, your fertility changes, right? So it's not, and we'll talk about this in a second in sex education, it's not 100% guaranteed that like it, you won't have kids, right? It's not a form of birth control but it does make the process of having biological children a lot more difficult, especially if you start hormone blockers and for example, assigned female at birth never goes through um, menstruation, right? So you're basically infertile. 
So that's something to think about with your teens and something to talk about. And most of the time, you know, with my teens, they're like, I can't even think about having kids. All I can think about is like not dying tomorrow. And you're like, you know what? That's fair. And in the future, um, here are some options you might be able to have, right? Adoption, all that kind of stuff. But that is a conversation to have with your teens because um, it's a big decision. Statistics, I know this is a meaty slide, but um, so there's higher rates of self-injury and, and suicidal behaviors in teens, um, trans non-binary teens, higher rates of attempts and suicide. So 41% of all transgender youth have said that they've attempted suicide at least once in their lifetime. There's higher rates of depression, anxiety, substance abuse, eating disorders, which actually is, if you think about it, is very, uh, it makes a lot of sense, right? Controlling the body. Higher rates of trauma and PTSD and a very high rate of inpatient psychiatric hospitalizations. And the statistic on this is a little bit miffy or muffy, I, me in words today, um, but is, is it because parents are sending their kids to psychiatric hospitals because they're trying to change them? Or are the kids going to psychiatric hospitals because of the rate of suicidal uh, behavior? So we're not 100% sure where the stat is on that, but that is something to consider. Uh, kids coming out and being put into hospitals. Um, in, a, in other states, conversion therapy is still legal. But there is good news. So there is de there's developing evidence that when family, community, school, and medical support mechanisms are all in place, trans youth experience a very similar range of mental health and well-being compared to the rest of the population, right? So if they're being supported in their trans identity, then all their other teenage stuff is just going to be relative to being a teenager. Um, and I've seen that firsthand, you know, when I go to conferences and I meet with teens and they're like, oh, yeah, I don't even think about being trans. Like, my main thing is the fact that my mom is driving me crazy or I want a car and they won't buy me a car. Right. It's like issues that are relative to teenage life. Sex education. So sex education is a hot topic. I could talk about this all day in general. Uh, but when we look at trans non-binary youth, it's very, very important to recognize they're often getting the wrong sex education, right? So if they're not um, fully out or um, they've transitioned younger, right, they might be put into the sex education group with cisgender individuals. So the anatomy that's being talked about is not congruent to what they have. So something to do as a medical or as a mental health provider could be to sort of, or a caseworker is to create their own sort of gender terminology guide. So you work with your client to pick terminology to describe their anatomy in important ways. So I know like some, trans men that I talk to, they say, oh, my vagina, I call it my bonus hole or like uh, my, you know, second 
but or whatever you know they they come up with terminology or i don't talk about it at all or some guys you know refer to their clitoris as their dick you know it's things that and excuse my language but um it's important to talk about that stuff right because they all have ways of describing their body parts that are affirming to them then you go and you help find education around safe sex practices that use that affirming language, right? Because it's really, really important that they get the information. Knowledge of hormones and emphasis around not being used as birth control is also really important. So just because you're on testosterone and you're not menstruating anymore doesn't mean you can't get pregnant. You still can. It's very rare, but it happens. Same with, you know, estrogen, right? Just because you are taking estrogen doesn't mean that your semen, your sperm count is, you know, non-existent, right? It still is. Also educating around sexually transmitted infections appropriate for the sex assigned at birth, right? So this can deal with like symptoms, treatment, right? So as we might, may or may not know, you know, gonorrhea looks different in sexual anatomy congruent to men than it does in sexual anatomy congruent to women, right? So having a conversation with like a trans woman, you know, a, a trans teen about how gonorrhea might look in their anatomy is important. So differentiating between rather what their presenting gender is and their sexual anatomy is very, very, very key, but using their terminology helps them retain that information. So when we work as a clinician um, with youth, there's no single strategy about how to do that, right? We, we haven't agreed like these are best practices, right? Just like every client um, that we work with who's cisgender, every trans and non-binary individual is different. So we follow the client's lead. We, we, we take their, uh, we call meeting them where they're at, right? We assist families in becoming comfortable with the client's gender expression. And we uh, reassure the client that there is absolutely nothing wrong with their gender identity. So the world, right, that they live in, the circumstance that they might live in may treat them poorly, but that doesn't mean that there's anything wrong with them. So when you're working with families or you're seeing a teen or a kid um, by themselves, keep in mind that you should do two different intakes, okay? It's really important. So the youth will center more around questions about gender identity, expression, their level of outness, psychological issues they may be uh, facing, their relationships with their parents and family, and then asking normal stuff like, what do they see as their personal strengths? What are their hobbies? What kind of things make them them, right? So going away from the gender identity, because you can use those strengths and coping skills. Now for the parent, it's really important to ask medical and mental history, diagnoses and medication, right? Are they on blockers? Have they started hormones? Specific items related to the emergence of gender identity. So if the parents are coming in because the kid just came out and be like, okay, what did the kid say? When did you know? Did you know, right? Asking questions about when it emerged. 
Also, their level of acceptance for gender non-conforming behavior. That's really important because if the parent's like, I'm totally not on board with this, right? And you're the type of person that might be triggered by parents who are not on board, then maybe it's not the right client for you and you need to refer out, right? Or if the parent says, I'm feeling weird about it, but I would love help, then maybe it's a different treatment approach. So the intakes are really great and doing it separately is really important because then the parent can be out about their fears without, you know, upsetting the kid. Because I've been in situations where the parents talk openly and it's pretty, pretty traumatizing for the children. So when you work as a clinician, right, you also should help clients explore their feelings about gender. There's a lot of great workbooks with youth, um, like My Gender Quest, My Gender Journey. Um, there's a lot of really cool books that are kind of like fill it in and kids love it. Also, the, depending on the age of the child, right, you might be doing a lot of play, a lot of art, um, a lot of like dolls and being like, tell me about this doll and how does that doll feel, right? You know, when they're not being called the right name. So there's a lot of really fun ways to explore gender. Share skills for dealing with gender-based bullying. So strengthening the child's gender resilience help families move towards accepting the child's identity and expression. And transition should take place when the child indicates that they're ready rather when the adults dictate it. So this can work both ways. If the child's like, I would like to transition and the parents are like, absolutely not, right? You can work with the team to say, okay, well, how can we still make you affirmed, right? Or I will call you by the name you would like in session. Or on the contrary, when the parents like, we want them to be on hormone blockers and the kid's like, I don't know, like if I want that yet, that's okay too, right? Follow the child's lead. All right, so moving into families. Safety concerns, this is something really important. Uh, it doesn't matter where you work or what type of situation you work in, thinking about safeties of families are very key. Right. So as a clinician or caseworker, it's important to discuss concerns around physical safeties for families with TGNB youth. So this can include asking if they feel safe in their home or in general space, discussing security. Right. So using locks, alarm systems, fences, gates, etc. And developing an agreed upon family response plan in case of an emergency imminent danger or less serious circumstances such as the vandalism. And you might be thinking, Jake, this is like catastrophizing, but I'm going to tell you, safety is very key, especially around trans individuals. People have gigantic feelings about trans folks in general. And then when you bring youth into the mix, it can get even worse, right? This also, and we'll talk about this in a bit too, but parents, right? If parents are divorced or parents are separated and one parent has sole custody and they're letting the child transition and the other parent is like, well, I'm going to, you know, do something to mess it up, right? You got to think about these types of things. Think about safety. Think about who you can pull in or what sort of tools you can pull in to keep the family safe. So with that said, a safe folder is very, very important. I recommend people have safe folders regardless of what age they are, 
But for families with under 18, this is very, very key. So save folders include documents from medical and mental health professionals. So if the child is on hormones, right, a letter from the medical professional saying that they've prescribed it um, and to call them with questions. Mental health professionals, right, we say the child is sane, like this isn't, you know, child abuse, right, we've signed off on this. Information about the family dynamics. So is there, you know, does mom have custody? Both parents have custody? Is um, aunt have custody, right? What does the family dynamic look like? A document from the school. So where do they go to school? Who knows about them at school? Are they out at school, right? The school contact, very important. Then letters from us, so gender therapist, gender clinic, or any family doctor attesting to the child's good health and gender identity, right? So a diagnosis, while people have feelings on it, it could be very um, key, especially with court. And then copies of paperwork showing changes to official documents. So if there's been a name change or custody order or legal, um, uh, legal sex change, right? That is very important to put in the safe folder. Um, and the cool thing too about safe folders is that the children can be involved in it. Um, so like even a letter from the child uh, or the child can decorate it. Um, pictures also of family is really important. And then with the younger kids, uh, sometimes you can have the child draw what their family looks like, right? So they feel that they are having control over their safety as well. So here's a kind of a big chart. Um, so these are parent, these are the general fears that parents have around a child's transition, right? So social transition can include adopting the hairstyles, clothing, name. we've talked about that, right? This pertains to any um, sort of age and the reversibility is 100%, right? Uh, you could decide to not wanna be affirmed in your gender or that that's not the right gender for you, fine. And with parents, that's also sometimes easier to kind of get them on board, right? Cause they're like, okay, we're just cutting their hair and buying clothes, okay. And then they start seeing how happy that their kids are and it makes it a little bit more, um, I guess, rewarding for the parents. Puberty blockers, we've talked about that, right? Um, early adolescence and also reversible. Gender affirming hormone therapy. So testosterone for those assigned female and estrogen plus androgen for those assigned male. Partially reversible. And we went into this pretty, pretty um, in depth in the first one. And if for anyone who would like more information on that, you can email me later and I can send you the, the slides around hormones. Um, older, older adolescence is usually where it goes. So about uh, 14, 15, 16. Uh, and like I said, it's partially reversible depending on, I guess, how old they are and what has already happened. Gender affirming surgery. So top surgery, right? To take breasts off or to enhance breasts, bottom surgery. We've talked about that too. And facial feminization surgeries. Surgeries are usually a little bit more tricky to get sign off for under age because um, 
surgeons like to make sure that there are no more effects of puberty happening. We say not reversible, but I always say, you know, at least for the chest surgeries, you know, you can always have implants or have implants removed. Um, so there's a little bit of reversibility there. And then legal transition, right? Name, gender change, all of that stuff uh, can happen at any age. It's actually a lot easier to do it when the child is under 18. Um, everything is super, super easy actually when you're underage and it's 100% reversible. You could change your name a thousand times. State doesn't care, it's more money for them. So um, super, super reversible. I always like to kind of bring slides in like this when you start having the conversations with clients around transition. Uh, what options or resources uh, do trans non-binary youth have when parents are not on board for transitioning? Um, so that's a really great question. Um, a lot of the time, and this is the conversation I have a lot with my clients who are underage uh, and don't have support. It's hard because you're underage and you don't have the autonomy to go and make medical choices, but you definitely have the options of affirming yourself in any way you can. We talked a little bit about it last time where um, a big thing that I, I always say is to create like a gender jar. Uh, and it's something that they can, you know, keep to themselves or sort of do in their phone. Uh, and they put affirming actions. So like, um, you know, playing a game or drawing. And so anytime that they encounter a non-affirming experience at home, they can go and partake in affirming. Um, one that someone came up with that I love is that they bought band-aids of like a television show or like that they love and they put it on them. And every time they see it, they're like, this is the one part of my body I can control in terms of identifying the way that I want to, right? It's a, you know, a Star Wars Band-Aid and that's cool to me. Another thing would be like going online and uh, I call it the Amazon game where you fill up a shopping cart of all the things that you wish you could buy and experience. Uh, and then with the hope that one day you'll be able to do that. Um, there's also a lot of groups depending on, because um, we all know you can consent, uh, at least in California, you can consent to your own therapy after 12 uh, years old. So you could find free resources for therapy groups, um, Discord, Reddit, and TikTok, like all of these things are really, really great for finding community. Um, so I'll give some direct links if you would like to later about resources like Trevor uh, project. But the best thing is to find people who identify like you. So more fears. Parents have fears that family won't react well. They have fears that the child will be bullied. Child will never find love or a partner. A child will never have a career. And the most important one that we hear all the time is that a child will be hurt and killed. And these are actually legitimate fears because there's things that happen and we hear about. But working with parents to normalize these fears are really important. So when you work with parents, it's really important to stress these key points. All behavior from a child is communication, right? We know that, all behavior. Even with like a teen, you're like, how'd you do today? And they're like, eh, right? It's like, that's communication. Don't try to change your child. 
right? Because sometimes what do kids love to do is when you try to push something, they push back even harder. Children are not too young to know. We talked about that. And sometimes as a parent, you never see it coming, right? You know, my mom saw it, but my dad was totally blindsided. And there's no right way to be trans. So with these fears, I'm going to go back for a second. These fears that parents have, right? When you say there's no right way to be trans, that means there's no right way that their life can end up. Listen, you could be a cisgender, heterosexual individual and never find love or never have a career or be bullied, right? It's not just because of the trans experience. And also super, super important to express to parents, it is not their fault and they did not cause this, right? They did not make their child trans or non-binary. And that's a really hard thing for parents to grasp their head around sometimes, especially if the child is biologically theirs. They think, you know, what did I do to cause this? So that's something that you will probably spend a lot of time discussing. Here are some youth and family resources. So Gender Odyssey, and I can send you guys uh, or type this in the chat box later. Gender Odyssey is a conference that happens every year in Seattle. Um, oh no, and moved to San Diego actually. Uh, so it's in San Diego now. Um, they're doing a lot of virtual stuff right now. Um, Gender Spectrum is one based in San Francisco in the Bay Area. And then PFLAG is great for parents, parents, families of lesbian and gays, except I think they changed it to include something with trans, but they have groups for trans kids, family members of trans kids, uh, siblings of trans individuals, family members of trans adults, everything. And they are all over the United States. Okay, so let's do a vignette. Let's put our knowledge to the test. So I'm gonna read the vignette and then I'll give us a few minutes if you need to read it on your own and then we'll discuss. So Jean and her family are moving from a more urban city in SoCal to a more rural town in NorCal. Jean has a 14-year-old transmasculine son named Tyler. And Tyler has been living authentically since he was 11. And because everything was relatively easy for the family, Tyler's legal paperwork has yet to be changed. Tyler is on a low dose of testosterone after being on blockers for a few years. However, he did experience puberty early on and must wear a binder, which is like a vest to conceal his breasts. He's scheduled for chest surgery in early 2021. So when you think about this family, right, we have a mom and the rest of her family and her trans mask son, and they're moving to probably a little bit more of a less welcoming environment, right? No paperwork has been changed, but he's on hormones. What are some initial concerns you might have for Tyler or Tyler's family? Or what are some things that you would might wanna know more about when helping to work with this family, right? What are some fears and concerns that Gene might have for Tyler. So think about that. Yeah, resources and family, uh, resources and um, for the family and youth in the new community. 
finding him a community, exactly. Safety, rural means more conservative, maybe, right? Um, it might not be as welcoming, right? There might not be as much access to stuff. Ah, the response and support he's going to get with the legal paperwork. That's a great one, right? The paperwork's not changed. So how is he going to navigate that? Especially because it seems like being on testosterone, right? And being for a while, he's probably assimilating. You know, we call it passing privilege, right? He's probably not a lot of people know that he's trans. So how is he going to handle that? Offer some resources of the community for the parent. Uh, as well, now that they've moved to more rural town. Yep. So maybe finding another PFLAG chapter or something online that they could talk to. Oh, trying to be accepted by peers. Exactly, right? Because who knows? Like, what if someone finds out? So I use this one, actually. This vignette is not 100% similar. I didn't move towns, but I did move schools. Um, and I start, I transitioned, you know, socially, um, I dropped out of school where I was kind of being bullied and I went to another school, um, where no one knew after I transitioned and my legal paperwork hadn't been done yet. So when I signed onto the portal at the time we were like, it was kind of a newer school where we were using an online portal. My old name was assigned to the portal. And so I had to navigate in this new school, uh, explaining to everybody why my old name that was very feminine, um, my dead name um, was on the portal. So it's little tiny things that we might not think about, you know, that doesn't affect cis individuals that definitely affects trans. And, you know, at the time I kind of just chalked it up and told people, oh, my parents were hippies and they named me on a whim, right? Um, but eventually people did find out and luckily it was a much better experience, but, you know, for Tyler, right, in this vignette, it could not be. So thinking about ways to navigate that with the parents, right? could be a really, really important thing for his safety. So let's jump into adulthood. In adulthood, let's say 24 plus, because in, um, in LGBTQ plus mental health, we think about youth or adolescents from 24 down. Or actually, you know what, for this sake, let's do college, just college age in general. I just realized that. Sorry about that. Ignore everything I just said. Okay, so variables of impact on transition, variables. Um, so the age of awareness, right? The age that they came out as an adult, age of transition, generational cohort, the stage of life they are when they come out or when they're living, uh, even with passing privilege, and then their family and friend support. There's discrimination all over, but you find with trans adults that you'll have discrimination in housing, jobs, school, like college or trade school, personal uh, relationships, and military. And military is actually something we don't talk a lot about a lot in the LGBTQ plus community, but military experience is something that's very common in trans experience um, because a lot of the time you'll see, we call that like sort of, um, my brain's escaping me with the defense mechanism, but the uh, like, I'm going to prove to everyone that I'm a man, right? When they're sort of questioning gender and they go and do like 
the most extreme thing they can do. So there's actually a lot of trans women who are veterans uh, and they find discrimination through that. We talked a little bit about that last time too. Higher education, right? So here's some things to consider if you're working with a trans non-binary client going into higher education. And we know that that's not a set age anymore. People go into higher education at all ages. So filling out applications, right? Um, what if all of your old uh, experience, right? Work experience, volunteer experience, um, grades, old grades, right? What if your references know you by your dead name? So how are you gonna navigate filling out apps? Safety in dorm settings and on campus, that's huge. Uh, the option of single dorms are great, but not everyone can A, afford a single dorm or B, have access to a single dorm. Being called the correct name slash pronoun in class, you see that a lot right now, especially with tele-schooling. Uh, I have a lot of clients that are misgendered or dead named um, in class because of their, you know, Moodle account or whatever they're using, or their voice isn't congruent to their identity, and so teachers will misgender them. Transfer of information from pre-transition school years, we talked about that. Coverage of medical costs through school health insurance. So for a lot of trans individuals, they're actually able to transition because they have school health insurance. So like UCLA has a really amazing gender health program. And so students who are actually people who aren't part of even UCLA can go, but students who are UCLA um, attendees have access to full coverage for the program, which is really cool. Uh, and then also transitioning away from home. So sometimes it's the ability to transition. And then what happens on like holidays, right? Coming home for the first time or they're graduated, right? So adjusting to different environments. Workplace rights. This is a really important little infographic I made. Um, so this is uh, about California specifically. So California has workplace protection against trans and non-binary employees. So they have the right to not be fired or refused a job. Uh, this is true even if your state and locality have not passed laws explicitly prohibiting gender identity discrimination. Um, by state, I mean California, I should reword that. Um, the right to not endure harassment. So this includes jokes, derogatory comments, repeated intentional use of the wrong name or pronouns, invasive dis or disrespectful personal questions. Also have the right to safe facilities consistent with gender identity. So that means like a restroom or a changing room. Um, and that also means that like the facility has to be within a reasonable distance from their workplace. So if the only bathroom they can use is like in the completely opposite end of the work campus, you know, you have to walk 10 minutes to get there, that's illegal. You have to be able to uh, use a restroom within reach. They also have the right to choose to be out and not be outed. So if I come out to HR and they tell people that's illegal, um, or if HR says, we want you to not tell anyone, and I'm like, but I want to tell everybody, I have the right to that decision. Something also that comes up in adult life is we start, start experiencing adult appointments, OBGYN, right? So um, gynecology appointments, colonoscopies, prostate exams, 
all that fun stuff that comes with adulthood. So similar to sex education, right? Work with your client to produce a list of questions or concerns prior to the appointment. That's really helpful. Who gets white coat syndrome? I know I do. So the second I go into the doctor, I'm like, ooh, what was I gonna ask, right? Then you add on top of it an appointment that is could be very triggering or around anatomy. It's really great to come in with everything on a piece of paper. Also take additional per people or a person as advocates when possible. So when I go to the gynecologist at Kaiser, I get a lot of looks, like a lot of looks. And people are like, why is this person here? So sometimes if I can, I'll take my best friend who's uh, identifies as female. And then people are like, oh, you're just being a good friend, right? It just helps me not having to deal with looks and stares. Um, and then like adolescents, right? Produce a terminology guide for body parts to give to doctors. So if you go to uh, get a prostate exam, you know, you're like, here's what I want you to call my prostate is how I want you to refer to my penis, you know, and then the doctor can use that as a guide. Uh, and if they refuse to, you actually can tell your client to note that in the chart that they refuse to respect pronouns and identity um, and to watch them as they put that down in a note. Uh, it's advocating for yourself. Family building. So we talked a little bit about this. Uh, so biological issues and fertility are always a thing. You know, if uh, for me, you know, I had a hysterectomy, so I can't have biological children, um, can't carry biological children. Uh, sometimes you have to make really early choices about having children. So when I was 15 and started hormones, I thought, okay, you know, I got to decide. And now, um, when I had my hysterectomy a couple of years ago, I had to think, well, I'm still like in my mid twenties, like do I want to, I don't know, right? I had to make these choices. Reproductive options, right? So I know trans individuals who are a couple, right? One trans female, one trans male, and they can actually have biological children if they wanted to, right? So talking about how family building can look different to every person or a trans man can donate his eggs and have a surrogate carry it, or a trans woman can donate sperm, right? There's all these, all these different options. Then there's also disclosure around parenting, right? So we're gonna talk about that in a little bit more depth about what it means to be a trans parent. Partnership. So this is something to think about too, right? What if you're already married? or you're in a relationship, or you're in some sort of partner dynamic. Disclosure to an already established relationship is super, super scary. And as a clinician, I've actually um, encountered this more often than not. People already being in actually like a legally binding relationship. And the best thing to possibly do is to have conversations with the trans individual about what it's going to look like when inevitably the dynamic changes. You'll still, maybe they still remain married, right? But the dynamic changes. So having that conversation early, early on can be very, very helpful. Dating, right? So as a trans individual, uh, they're dating, you know, so when I dated as a, you know, my gay identified male, it's like figuring out how to navigate all of that, right? 
and what it means to be a gay male who doesn't have a penis or what it means to be a lesbian who does, right? So it's like, how do you navigate and have those conversations? Intersectionality of dating, just what I said, right? Uh, being a heterosexual male who doesn't have a penis and dates heterosexual cisgender female, right? How do you work with that intersectionality? Also changing of a relationship identity through transition. So say you're in a cisgender heterosexual relationship, marriage, you come out as trans feminine. Now you're in a lesbian relationship, right? Or are you? It's up to you to decide what that identity is. And that's conversations to have with your part, uh, with your clients, right? Bring a partner in or refer to couples counseling. So let's talk a little bit about being a parent as a trans non-binary individual. Highlights. So being a partner or a co-parent is going to look different if you're already in an established relationship and you start transitioning, right? What are the kids going to call you? Or what is your partner going to call you, right? Um, you know, I have a lot of trans individuals who are parents and they call themselves mappas, right? Moms and dads. Coming out might actually make you a stronger family, right? Everyone thinks it's doom and gloom, but like you could actually come out really, really strong. Becoming a parent might actually jumpstart a transition. So when your child is born and you're like, you know what? I don't want to raise my child incongruent to my gender. Uh, considering parent day instead of mother and father's day can be very affirming to family members. And PFLAG is a great resource, right? We talked about that. There's groups for children of trans parents, right? Or uh, there's groups for parents with who are trans with children. There's groups for everything. I love group therapy. So here's a question I get a lot, right? Isn't a parent's transition upsetting to a child? Sure, could be, right? But also, Children tend to have fewer preconceived notions about gender. Most of the time, if your parent is happy, your child's going to be happy, right? They're going to connect. It's going to be a much happier, healthier dynamic. A recent national study actually found that 58% of trans parents and their children's relationships were the same or better than when they had previously transitioned. But we also have to remember intersectionality, right? Many factors come into play. So what was the child and parent's relationship prior? What's their socioeconomic status, their cultural background, et cetera? So yeah, it could be upsetting and it could not. It just really depends on a lot of factors. But here's the thing that gets brought up a lot, custody and visitation. So if a parent or if a relationship is ending due to someone's transition, which happens, and there's a custody battle, courts are generally only allowed to base custody or visitation rulings based on things that directly affect the best interest of the child. So if the trans parent is a great parent and the kid doesn't care, chances are nothing's going to happen, right? But if the parent is an unfit parent for circumstances beyond being trans, right? Maybe they can't provide a safe environment, they're abusive, you know, things like that. Then of course, 
the court's not going to rule in favor. But they don't rule based off of someone's trans identity alone. So like I said, right, if a transgender or if a parent of a trans non-binary individual can't be, um, if their identity can't be shown to hurt the child in any way and contact shouldn't be limited, then visitation and custody is not going to get changed. And that's really important and why the safe folders for kids are also really important um, because non-trans parents will fight over custody of trans children. So let's do another vignette. I love vignettes. Um, I know some of you are like, what is this, grad school? But I love vignettes. So let's talk about this family for a second. Jenny is a 35-year-old trans woman who comes in for help during her transition from male to female. She started hormones just a few months ago, and she and her partner, a 35-year-old cisgender woman, have an eight-year-old daughter. And Jenny, and so they're both bio they're biological parents. Jenny is concerned about whether or about when to come out to her daughter, especially now that her breasts are starting to develop. She's also concerned that her daughter will get bullied in school. So here are some questions. What are resources that might be important for Jenny? What considerations must you make when finding these resources? And what other factors of Jenny's transition or life or experience should we take into consideration um, when sort of treating Jenny? I'm gonna give it a few minutes. Um, and this wall, this vignette's not based on anyone I know. It's definitely based on a bunch of, um, a, a bunch of collection of experiences that I've heard. So we could start off with like, what are some resources that might be important for, for Jenny? LGBT, LGBT Center and Children's Hospital LA both have both uh, great support groups. Yes, they absolutely do. Uh, Children's Hospital LA has uh, trans, oh gosh, what's the word? Uh, I can't remember the name, but it's a group specifically for parents. Um, support groups talking to others who have gone through this. Yep, absolutely. What about stuff in relation to like uh, having the child, like custody and, and stuff with the child? Does that make any sense? Because they're both married and things are seeming to be fine, but, but might that be a good idea to have like proof of custody or a written agreement between both parents? Uh, yeah, that'd be awesome. How do you feel like Jenny what are some ways that you feel like Jenny might come out to her kid? What are some things that she could do to sort of help with that? Yeah, assisting her with helpful language that is de developmentally appropriate. Exactly, right? How would you talk to an eight-year-old? Yeah, transitioning similarly because the daughter is eight, right? Shared experience. Thinking about how the relationship with Jenny was before transitioning? Oh, here's a question. When a parent transitions, can they change the name of the birth certificate to help with custody documentation? You know, I actually don't know that. And I will look that up. A great place to find that information too would be the Transgender Law Center. They have information about all that stuff. But now I'm curious and I will definitely look that up. 
you guys have a lot of really great information and ideas to help Jenny. Um, and, you know, this is not a rare vignette. This happens. I see this happen a lot. Um, so it's just something to consider. Let's talk about elders. Some perspective. In 2011, a survey about trans non-binary elders uh, was conducted and many stated that they would prefer to kind of live at home or to sort of die at home rather than be in palliative care or nursing facility. And that was because they were often afraid of the type of care that they would receive. And that's not, you know, about general care, that's care in regards to their gender identity. A major fear included having their gender identity respected and being allowed to live in their last moments with grace and dignity. Something to consider though, is that this is kind of the first real generation that we have. So the generation below me that's growing up right now, um, that we can sort of anticipate having large numbers of eventual trans elders, right? We don't really have a lot of trans elders to conduct research on or develop proper care techniques. Um, and you might be wondering, well, why is that so? Are there not a lot of trans and, you know, is trans a new thing? Well, we have to think about our historical um, experience, right? So back in the 60s or 70s, right, when a lot of LGBT civil rights were being fought for, um, trans individuals were hardly talked about. And a lot of trans individuals had to sort of hide or um, weren't able to come out. Also, if we think about it, the AIDS epidemic, HIV epi um, diagnoses, actually decimated a lot of our trans leaders and a lot of the people that could have been trans elders today. So the fact of the matter is they're no longer alive to be considered, you know, to have reached the elder stage. But here are some concerns that we have, right? So there's financial impacts of being a trans elder. And uh, we talked about this before, but the socioeconomic status of many trans individuals are, are usually on the lower end of the spectrum. So when they're older, having the ability to retire or having the ability to afford healthcare or afford um, places to live are really, really difficult. There's also evolving relationships with families. So if you come out later in life, those circumstances might change, or a lot of individuals might not have family who could take care of them when they're older. A lot of trans elders don't have children or their children don't talk to them, or uh, it's just a strained relationship. Their parents are probably no longer alive, um, or if they are, you know, don't talk to them. Siblings and other relatives, there's often strained relationship. Healthcare involvement and assisted living is just, there aren't a lot of uh, options, right? Or healthcare in general is tricky with geriatric care. And then you bring in, you know, long-term effects of hormones or later in life surgeries, right? It's, it's very difficult. There's also issues around social support and community connection. So, you know, if they want to be out or if they want to hang out with other trans individuals, 
who are the same age. It's very, very difficult. It's very lonely. It's isolating. I mean, elder, we've talked, we talk about that too in mental health is difficult. Um, elder or geriatric mental health disparities are rarely talked about in general. And then you add on trans uh, non-binary impact, you know, super, super rare to have that discussion. But how can we help, right? What are some case management things that we can do to help? So we can help navigate concerns with aging. So estate planning, advanced, advanced directives, wills, etc. We can give linkage to caregiving services and support groups. They do exist. They're just hard to find. Form a support team uh, with medical doctors, with us, um, with other, you know, maybe LGB individuals, even though it's not trans, right? At least they have people in a similar community. Make a safe folder similar to the ones created for youth that could be helpful in emergencies. This one would contain, you know, advanced directives. And linkage to elder housing. So here in uh, LA, there's the LGBT center. They just opened up a new how, uh, elder housing complex. There's also Triangle Square, uh, which is part of the LGBT center. That one is more of an, um, like an apartment complex. And then there's the San Francisco Elder Housing Project. Um, so they can help find resources in the Bay Area. Here are some resources for elders. So SAGE USA is the LGBTQ plus um, elder nonprofit. It's like, think of it, it's like the Trevor Projects for Youth. SAGE USA is for elders and they have access to all different types of care, but most of it is LGB focused. It's hard to find trans primarily focused stuff, but Sometimes I say a little bit of something is better than nothing. AARP.org has advanced directives that you could print out and fill out with your clients and also write in things about transition related um, medical stuff, which is important. And then the LGBTAgingCenter.org also has links to stuff all over um, the United States. So let's put everything together that we just talked about, right? Um, sort of ending on this. So let's remember considerations around transition and the trans non-binary and identity change throughout the lifespan. It's constantly evolving. So we can have someone who comes out as a teen, right? Transitions, but then experiences all the things we've talked about in adulthood, like discrimination or um, issues, difficulty dating. And then as they get older, having to experience elder care, right? So it's constantly evolving and constantly changing. Just because someone transitions doesn't mean that they're done thinking about transitioning for the rest of their life, right? There's something that's gonna come up in every stage of life around transition. Even if I, you know, things like me, like I haven't thought about medical stuff for like 10 years and then I was having issues and I was like, oh, I have to have hysterectomy, right? And I was like, I thought I was done with all this, but no, I had to have another surgery. And then I'm sure when I'm 40 or 50, there's things that are gonna come up that I'm gonna have to think about again, right? Being up to date on resources for all of the life stages can help clients more than you know. So even something as simple as like food 
resources or um, Medicare, right? Or how to apply to uh, scholarships for queer youth, right? That could all be really helpful because for some uh, LGBT or for some trans non-binary individuals going to college could be life-saving, but they can't afford it because their parents disown them, right? So figuring out like how to provide resources for school. Um, and then lastly, trans non-binary individuals experience cisgender life milestones just as much as anyone else. So everything that they're going through, having to think about their trans identity, they also have to navigate regular plain old life milestones, right? Getting a car, graduating, finding a job, um, anything that we, you know, buying their first house, anything that a cisgender person experiences, a trans individual can experience too. They just bring their trans identity with them. And sometimes it's a hindrance. Sometimes it's a um, something that helps build resilience. And sometimes it's not an issue at all, right? But just keeping in mind how their life stage and their identity are working together. So with that said, what questions and comments do we have about everything we just talked about? Or is there something that you would like more clarification on? How can I help further this conversation? And then um, I put my email if anyone needs any specific direct resources. I've mentioned this before. I have an Excel spreadsheet of trans non-binary specific resources across um, across the United States. So I'm happy to point people in direction. Yes, I'm based in Los Angeles, born and raised. You can't tell by my uh, Valley Boy accent. Taking clients, yes, always. Um, if there's anything specific that you would like a copy slide of, like one of the graphs, feel free to email me. I'm happy to send you uh, the graphs that I use since they're public, um, public graphs. Yes, thank you everybody. I love participation, so thank you so much for all of your participation.